I don't really have any experience with the Sly Cooper franchise in any significant manner. I'm aware of it. I've been aware of it for some time. But that's about as far as that actually goes. It's funny, because going into this, at first I was really impressed with it. But by the end of it, I was left feeling kind of lackluster. I'll try and explain both aspects as I go through this rumination. But the first thing I want to praise is the voice acting. There was only one voice actor that didn't really do it for me. And that was the voice actress for Neela. Because, frankly, by the end of the game, her pathetic ranting wasn't impressive in any sense. Like, it was, you could tell it was supposed to be this horrifying nightmare thing. And, or possibly comedic, and it was neither. It was just, ah, and it's funny because apparently the actress who plays Neela is also the one who plays Carmelita. She does a perfectly fine job of Carmelita, so I have no idea what the issue was there. Anywho, <clears throat> the tone of the game in general was awesome. Uh, <laughs> the whole noir, you know, pseudo cops thing, Batman and, and Catwoman angle, you know, the, it's hard to properly describe. Like, I love the animated scenes they use to, to discuss events and whatnot in between, in between action set pieces and, and levels. And I love how they're, they're what I call pseudo animated scenes, where it's drawn, but it's not really animated. If you pay attention, the number of, of moving parts in any of those animated cutscenes is very small. Like, you have a single person who is, like, right at the beginning, Dimitri, swinging back and forth. But for the most part, it's just his entire image is swinging back and forth. He is not fully animated like you would see in a fully animated work. Now, I'm not complaining about that. It's part of the style. It basically makes it read like a slightly animated comic book. It's, it's a deliberate thing, like I said, pseudo-animated, which I do enjoy. I also like the, the usage of sound effects constantly. I know that's a weird thing to point out. But one of the things I've noticed, especially in the last few years, is that a lot of cartoons tend to do the thing where there's way more sound effects for, like, everything. Like, not just for walking around or background noise. I mean, if I go, like, that in a cartoon, someone will add a as I'm doing that. Or a you know, there's just little sound effects all over the place. Just like a cartoon. And again, uh, they do this really heavily stylized music in basically every scene. And I have praise for the music. I actually rather enjoyed it for the most part, especially the dance club music. But, I, you know, it was good stuff. It, it really helped to sell the tone, and that's what I'm talking about. I, I kind of wish that I'd looked at this game last year, because if I had, I would have put my rumination of this game right alongside my rumination of Max Payne. Well, both games don't really have a lot to discuss story-wise, they both managed to hit a really nice sweet spot in terms of that flavor and that tone and that presentation. I also like several of the improvements this game got. I'm pretty sure I've played the first game. Like, I have distinct memories of the first game. And I also distinctly remember being like, oh, this is neat. I actually have a health bar when I picked up and started playing this one. Oh, by the way, I was playing the, the new collection bundle thing, if anybody's curious. Obviously. <laughs> Usually play the more modern version of any given game for rumination, unless specifically requested otherwise, because in general it's easier and to get a hold of and generally cheaper, too. Anyways... <clears throat> So, you know, having the actual health, um, it, it reminded me most of the difference between Assassin's Creed and Assassin's Creed 2. Because in Assassin's Creed, while you did have health in the strictest sense of the word, generally, if you got in, <clears throat> excuse me, if you got into combat, it boiled down to a little bit of, you know, counterattack, 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 escape, rather than just being the brawler that Ezio was. I've actually talked about this several times before. 
Furthermore, and to the same point, it got rid of the binary nature of failure, which is something I always approve of in most video games. In, in other words, if you screwed up in the first game, it was usually just, ah, okay, go back. If you screw up in this game, usually you have a chance to recover from that. And I did appreciate that. There were several moments where I was like, especially when I was playing as Murray, and I got spotted. I'm like, oh, shoot, quick, run in. And while I took a couple of hits, I was able to take down the guys who spotted me and then proceed and have no problems or issues. That's kind of what I mean. In other words, the level design in general and the difficulty curve in general feel better constructed than in the first game. I also uh, love the excessive use of gadgets. I, I tend to like gadget usage in video games in general. I've kind of noticed, you know, Ratchet and Clank, uh, the Arkham games, you know, stuff like that. And I like having the ability to change party members based on the mission. It's also especially interesting because I did that a couple of times just to play around with it. And then later on it turns out you kind of have to play as some of them for certain sections as part of the story. So I'm kind of glad I got a little bit of self-tutorialization in there. I also like how you can buy upgrades back in town. I tend to be in favor of, up, of an upgrade system or a pseudo-customization system. But I also liked it because it sort of incentivized me to, to not only stay in stealth, but as a consequence of staying in stealth, to pickpocket all over the place, to steal as much as I could in order to make sure that I could go and afford those upgrades. Overall, playing through this game was actually pretty fun. In fact, if I was doing my review system, which obviously I don't do this for ruminations, but if I was doing my review system, I imagine the gameplay side would have quite a few pluses, and the story side would have a couple. And I want to give one other shout-out just to the music. In fact, in my notes here, I'm looking down at my notes, I actually have just a smiley face. I just have the word music and a smiley face, because that just summarizes it so expertly. Weird thing, though. Was anyone else weirded out by the facial animations? Especially on Sly himself, just... Like, it was so, it wasn't the fact that it was overly expressive. It was the fact that so many of the time, it didn't seem to match up with his tone of what the actor was saying, or even the scene of what was being said, so, I don't know. One other thing that came to mind as I was going through this is Carmen Sandiego. It's another similarly toned work, at least in some of the games and some of the shows. The idea of the, you know, the super, uh... Basically, the, the, the thief that you're supposed to root for, that you, the viewer, are supposed to root for. In this case, we're literally playing as the thief. You know, the idea that, yeah, cool, suave, intelligent gadgets, and, you know. But at the same time, both kind of pull that perspective of the thief without making them a horrible person. It's, the Sly series in general has usually made a very clear distinction between being a thief and being a horrible individual. And we see examples of both as we go throughout the game. Like Neela, horrible individual. But most of the bosses, the mob bosses, or the, the, the claw gang bosses, I should say, that we go after throughout the course of this game, are not, not actually on the horrible side of the thing. But I'll talk about them in just a second when we talk about the story. A um, couple other small bits. So, <clears throat> a lot of games have the problem where... You know, I bet that enemy got the point, right? Like, where they just repeat lines for certain types of actions. And it gets old after a little while. And this is especially a problem right about this era, the PS2 era, basically. Right when voice acting in video gaming was becoming a lot more common, especially in console games. It had already been in PC games since the 90s, but again, it was becoming much more common. And yet at the same time... It felt like they hadn't really figured out how to do that yet. So we got a lot of weird dialogue and voice acting problems in this era. And this is one of the biggest ones for me personally, right after bad voice direction. You know, 
so there were several moments, especially when I'm trailing someone or when I'm sneaking around trying to get scouting reports or scouting photos, excuse me, that people would just repeat their lines, not just in general, but over and over. It would be like, here's my line. Here's my other line. Here's my third line. Here's my line. Here's my third line. Here's my other line. Here's my line. And that's just, it was just nonstop. Like, they, it was almost as if in some cases they didn't even pause to breathe. Dimitri was easily the worst one about this, but oh my gosh. But speaking of the scouting thing, that's another thing I liked. Um, so rather than just being pure mission-based, we actually had a degree of a hub. And I liked the idea of going back into town and, you know, town, switching out people, upgrading. You know, it gave, gave it a little bit more of a sense of... <sighs> I hate to use the word immersive because that's not quite what I mean. But it made it feel more believable, more real. It, it, it pulled me into the game more, basically. And I also liked be, the, the whole scouting thing. Go out and ch -ch -ch -ch, figure out what we're going to do and come back to Bentley and he gives us the plan. And it's just, it's just good stuff. I like that. I also really like the variety of missions. The first mission is, of course, basically completely typical. Here's a art gallery, here's a club, you infiltrate, you get in, boom. Second mission, also fairly typical. Third mission completely subverts the pre previous two. Fourth mission completely subverts it again. And the fifth mission kind of goes in a completely new direction. And, and you know, it, it, my point being, I, I, I'm summarizing, of course, there's actually more than five missions. But my point being, I really enjoyed that variety. And I really enjoyed the fact that they bothered to to essentially establish a pattern, then break it, so that we have more impact from the break, so that the variety means something. In other words, if every mission is different, that's fine in its own right, but it's not, in my opinion, games are better served by establishing a pattern than breaking it, because that adds narrative impact as well as gameplay impact. I might as well call this Paper Mario 2 effect. For those of you not aware of Paper Mario 2, the first two chapters are very typical, and then none of the rest are from that point onward. Anyways, um... Look at my notes here. I think that's kind of all I had to say about the gameplay, which is funny because, again, the gameplay was the most interesting part. Now, I was told that there was a... Uh, a friend of mine talked to me about this, that there was a thing where you could get, like, a USB mic attached to the controller, and the amount of noise you, the player, can make could impact the game. And that sounds like a neat concept in theory, although I imagine how that could be really upsetting given that not everyone has the ability to play in what is effectively total silence or privacy. Excuse me. Oh my goodness, excuse me. So having said that, I'm kind of glad I got to skip out on that. Although at the same time, if I had access to it, I totally would have done it. Story-wise, each of the claw bosses is interesting to me in the way that they contrast uh, each other, but more to the point, the actual uh, the protagonist, so to speak. So Dimitri is obviously the first one I want to talk about. The Shandartiste. Now, what I like most about him is he is basically the contrast to Sly. But both of them have the least characterization of the characters we encounter in this game, in my opinion. That's actually a fairly common thing in a lot of fiction, not just video games, but television and movies as well, where the main character, the main protagonist's characterization is that they are the hero. <laughs> you know? Now, I'm not saying Sly isn't characterized, but I do feel he is significantly less characterized than Murray or Bentley, for example, or Carmelita, for that matter. I do enjoy his uh, witty repartee, don't mistake me. But at the same time, you know, aside from his interactions with others, he just comes across as kind of flat. And the same kind of thing happened with Dimitri. He is the shunned artiste. He, he likes art and he likes, you know, being true to things and everything's cool. And, well, that's kind of the extent of his character. 
He also serves as a nice uh, parallel to Cooper in the fact that Sly is someone who kind of lost everything, you know, family dead situation, and believes legitimately in, for lack of a better way to put it, the chaos aspect of the Axis, you know, chaos-neutral law. Um, but the difference is Sly is arguably chaotic good. Remember, the entire impetus for this entire episode is not greed or selfishness or thievery or doing jobs or whatever. It is trying to make sure the clockwork isn't rebuilt. Just a purely good motive, basically. So he's more on the chaotic good aspect, whereas Dimitri ended up going on the chaotic evil aspect. In other words, being purely self-motivated and selfish. That leads us to Rajan. Now, Rajan's actually interesting to me because... He's a nobody. He is not actually some bigwig or whatever. His entire story arc is basically about his pretensions at aristocracy. The kind of person who's like, I am someone important. I am! Yes, look at my fancy clothing that I have bought. He is the thug that pretends at royalty. There's actually been several real-life terms for that exact concept for many, many years of real-life human history, especially uh, here in the States, as well as in Europe. Um, I, I mean, I shouldn't even have to say that, of course, is that in Europe. It's, it's a worldwide phenomenon, but I've studied several examples in both the two areas I just mentioned. Uh, the whole I've mentioned this during the Witcher 3 thing, you know, the, the robber baron kind of a thing. The, the, the noble lord who was actually just a thug who robbed his way into riches, that kind of a thing. And that's kind of what Rajan comes across as. Of course, this naturally makes him the perfect contrast to Murray. It is, of course, appropriate that Murray is the one who actually ends up defeating him in the end in the second mission uh, involving Rajan. Although I have to pause for a moment. I'm not big on shipping. I'm not. But, Jesus Christ, this game really, really, really pushes Sly and Carmelita together. Constantly. That's igno It does that all over the place. And I'm just saying that in addition to the fact that the two of them had a slow romantic dance while he was trying to steal the wings. Uh, anyways, one other thing I have to mention about Rajan really quick, uh, before I talk about Murray, is that you can kind of tell his mentality based, you can kind of tell the mentality of all these people based on how they use the pieces of clockwork. Uh, Dimitri, well, well, I don't really need to get him, but Rajan, he just wanted to have him on display. This will increase my prestige, you see. I have the wings of clockwork. I am super... It's like someone stealing the Mona Lisa and displaying it. And being like, look how rich and valuable I am. Why? Well, because I stole the Mona Lisa. You know, just says something about that mentality. And, of course, this is in perfect contrast to Murray, who is very honest. In fact, that's probably one of his most interesting character traits, is that despite being part of a stealing gang, he is almost universally honest and open uh, about basically everything that he does. It's also doubly interesting to me, because Murray himself comes across as the simple one, and yet, for all of that, Murray at least understands who and what he is. Whereas Rajan doesn't seem to be able to come to grips with that. And once again, we can kind of see how Murray could have become like Rajan, and Rajan could have been like Murray, depending on how you look at that. Which brings us to the Contessa, the most wonderful person in the world. She is above morality. She is beyond the others. I do not look down. I didn't care for her voice actress, actually, that much either, if I'm being completely honest. It felt like the voice actress was told, like the voice direction was, Okay, <clears throat> be evil. <laughs> and, she, and the actress was like... Uh, okay, I can work with that, <laughs> you know. 
Again, no offense to the actors and actresses. It just, huh? Anywho, <clears throat> she's, you know, she claims she's above morality and how she's so much smarter than everyone else around her. She is the selfish one. Everything she does is entirely focused around herself, from uh, killing her husband in order to, well, excuse me, becoming married and then killing her husband in order to gain his riches, and then setting herself up as an agent of Interpol, the warden of Interpol to be more accurate, and setting herself up to so that she would have plenty of uh, thieves coming in. All of her motivations are about herself and what she cares about. I mean, what do you think she's doing in there? Constantly hypnotizing people in order to steal their money so that she has more. Fully self-focused and self-interested, despite being very smart and using her intellect in order to outmaneuver those who are stronger or better positioned or more politically powerful around her. Which, of course, makes her the contrast to Bentley. Since Bentley himself is basically in the exact same boat. A relatively weak little turtle who really does, can't do a much and fr frankly has difficulty even saying, I'm crashing, without being like, I'm going downward at a downward momentum. It's excessively quick. I'm sorry. I, I love Bentley. He's awesome. Um, <laughs> but the difference is Bentley is selfless. Bentley goes out of his way multiple times to try and help those around him, even in situations where he is significantly outgunned and completely in over his head. But he still does it because he is just as motivated by that desire to help others as she was by her desire to help herself. You'll notice that both of these characters face significant hardship throughout the course of the game and overcome it. It's just in her case, it's all because she wants her for herself, and in his case, it's because he wants to help Sly and his friend, Murray. This is a good time to mention uh, Neela's betrayal, which was well-telegraphed and shown way in advance. I mean, I'm sorry, it was super obvious that Neela was going to betray us. Shirtland was in Carmelita. And <sighs> I wish there was any impact from that. As ever, I love to hear your guys' thoughts in the comments sections of these ruminations. It's one of my favorite aspects of waking up uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, as I get to see your guys' comments. It's not a joke. I really do. I, I get up in bed, and I usually have my phone in bed with me, and I just pull it out, and I'm just kind of still waking up, and I just start browsing through the comments to see what you guys are seeing. It helps me to wake up in the morning. So, I would love to hear your thoughts on the whole Neela character arc, or rather the lack of character arc, because Neela's just like, Hi, I'm kind of here and kind of suspicious. Suspicious, suspicious. Oh, by the way, I'm betraying you. <laughs> and I'm betraying you, and I'm betraying you, and now I'm the pure heart of evil. I will kill you in your sleep. I'm sorry, I'm speaking so derogatorily, but it just, I didn't feel it the whole way through. Again, I feel like the voice direction was, okay, you're evil. And that, that was the extent of it, you know? Then we go after John Bison. Oh, I'm sorry, Jean Besson. Sorry. Now, he's an interesting one to me, too, because we've already had a direct comparison and uh, parallel between each of the boss members and, you know, the party members. And we actually, and yet we still have two left, uh, technically three if you count Leela, uh, or Neela, excuse me, I keep calling her Leela. Damn you, Futurama. But Jean Besson, he works most for me because he is actually more of a par comparison to the entire party than he is to an individual. He is completely out of the times, contrasting Bentley, who is the tech-savvy person. He, he uses his brute strength in order to self-aggrandize 
to buff up his own ego. <laughs> no one will ever beat me, which is in total contrast to Murray, who likes to use his significant strength and force in order to try and help others. And he himself is someone who aspires to an ambition and legitimately believes in his cause, kind of like Sly. It's just his own cause is one that was, as Sly himself says, out of date. It's about a century out of date at this point. I do find this entire chapter to be probably one of my favorite chapters, just in terms of pure gameplay. I really liked going through the whole Lumber Games thing and the variety of what we were doing and, and just all of that stuff. It was fun stuff. It was enjoyable stuff. And then, of course, what's most interesting to me is Jean Besson, despite being probably the least evil of the various members of the Claw Gang, is the one who beats us. And I can't help but point out the cartoony morality of this. I'm not saying that as an insult, but it is something you could see in a cartoon, right? The heroes resort to cheating and lose against someone who isn't as evil as everyone else, because evil defeats itself, and we, you, see, you kind of see how that kind of plays in there. And then, of course, uh, Jean Basson ends up being put down and, and defeated by Bentley, of course, which is awesome. And he mentions that he sold all the parts. It's also probably one of the first moments... Okay, that's not true. It's like the third moment in the game where I felt like the game was trying to evoke, for lack of a better way to put it, a real emotion in me. Insert FF10-2 here. Because there's several moments in this game that I feel like if they were directed differently and presented differently would be very serious and very dark. And I would like that. Not because I like everything to be very serious and dark, but because I like a work which knows how to be funny properly and at the same time knows how to be dark properly. I think the two mix quite well. I like Empire Strikes Back as much as most people. So it would have been interesting if in this relatively lighthearted adventure as we're trying to go about and defeat these crime lords, we then are handed a very serious defeat at the hands of someone who isn't even really all that bad of a guy. But instead, there's no real impact in the moment for me. This is probably made even worse later on when we go after Arpeggio, or Arpeggio. They, they change how they pronounce it throughout the game. He's an interesting one, because he is the crime lord who has by far the least characterization. He was a runt who decided to go ahead and use his brilliance and savvy to become an inventor, and now he's got plans of immortality by harnessing hatred, because all he cares about is himself. What I find most interesting about Arpeggio is his biggest shtick, if I was to say, is shame. That he, you could say shame and pride are intertwined, and that would be a very accurate statement, I would say. But I specifically say shame more than pride. Because it's not just, I should have more, it's, I should be better than this. Right? And you just get that impression from the actor and the way he talks. I should be better than this. I should be owed more than this. This should be different, etc., etc. But we never actually fight him because Neela takes him out and then... <laughs> this is also probably one of the things that I find most hysterical about this because everyone just... I mean, this is a fantastical setting, so we just kind of have to accept that fantastical elements exist. But the way they treat... The, the clockwork pieces and the nature of it is basically magic. Let's just be 100% honest about that. They even flat out refer to clockwork and his hatred and, and his curse, uh, excuse me, his interactions with the Cooper family as a curse, which I think is a fairly accurate statement given the circumstances. I mean, the magic, they, they mention how he's this big mechanical body, and yet the thing that keeps him powered despite not being connected to anything is the hatred circuit. 
which when smashed by Carmelita, very appropriate, literally disintegrates Clockwork and erases him. So to be blunt, I don't have that much to say about Arpeggio. I really don't have much to say about Neela. But I actually have something to say about Clockwork. Because I think this is probably one of the narrative things they did very well. Again, I, I didn't feel Neela. I didn't feel Arpeggio. I didn't feel most of the impacting scenes that feel like they should have been dark and horrible. Like the scene where Neela's soul or ghost or whatever is speaking from Clockwork's de- dying maw should have been horrifying. And instead it was just, okay... I'll kill you in your sleep. No, 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 no. <laughs> Take the actress aside. Say it more like this. And, and then, you know, try to work with her on it. But Clockwork, what I like about Clockwork is that they did something smart with him. Too often fiction, especially cartoon fiction, tends to have a thing where they just kind of keep bringing back the same characters because they're popular. It's logical and it's understandable why you do it. But it also is a very easy thing to overdo. How many times have we seen the Joker across multiple medias in fiction? It could be argued that the Joker is overdone. This is also probably why some of his presentations, just in, to be completely blunt, are not all that good, because we've seen the Joker before. We've seen multiple shades and types of the Joker, right? But you got to bring him back because he's the Joker. But I like this because Clockwork is still just as important within this setting, obviously, not in a global sense, because no, who's ever heard of Sly, am I right? But within the Sly verse, Clockwork is just as important and powerful of a character as the Joker, but he's dead. But the writer smartly decided to make sure that he continued to have an impact despite death. That's the interesting part to me, right there. Because that's something I see very rarely in fiction, where an author will go ahead and let a character die, but allow that character to keep being relevant. You can even keep having the, the voice actor come back, if you want to keep the voice back, or if the voice actor is particularly popular, like Mark Hamill, excuse me, you know, by having there be either flashbacks or, you know, hallucinations or historical records or voice clips. or There's so many different ways you can still have the literal voice of the recurrent character come back, even though the recurrent character is dead and gone. And I love that they decided to make the threat not be Clockwork himself, but the nature of what he represented and what he could become for someone else. That was brilliant, in my opinion, and a great way to continue the series. Unfortunately, I don't have much else to add to this. Uh, I do hope you guys have enjoyed my thoughts, and I hope we get a Sly 5 sometime soon, because I'd totally play the hell out of that. Anyways, I'll see you around, guys.